Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, yesterday I jumped in trying to do these recordings at home. It went pretty well. I think the audio is pretty different using this boom mic. It's the same mic that I use when I'm out on the boat. And I got this one because it was given to me as the best option by truck drivers who have to drive with the window down and uh, need a headset to be able to talk to loved ones, family, friends and, and business stuff whilst they're on the road. So it's very, very good at cancelling out background sounds but has a slightly tinny sound to it. So we'll uh, we'll continue to improve the methodology. But what this means is that whilst Isaac is asleep again for another couple of hours this this uh, lunchtime, I can sit down with this wonderful RYA Sea Survival Handbook by Keith Colwell and, uh, and continue the chapter that we were on. So we were looking at Chapter 7. We'd already looked at the fact that uh, when it comes time to abandon a vessel, you should be stepping up into the life raft that to give that command is probably one of the most serious moments in a skipper's life and that we have to know what equipment we're going to be able to take with us. We have to have knowledge on how to use that equipment and how to operate inside the life raft. And we have to have the will to survive. Now, I told a bit of a story yesterday about me um, in Australia, um, ending up in a situation where I was swimming with a boat for a long period. How did it turn out was the question that I received very quickly thereafter. Um, it turned out okay. We were basically paddling for that night. And then when we got to the next island, the island that we got to, we only got to it because um, there was no moon that night. So you couldn't see anything. It was pitch black apart from the stars and the, like, the waves directly in front of you. And uh, we had no kind of torches that could well, what what uses a torch to when you really when you're in the middle of the ocean at the night, but you can't see anything ahead of you for any reason. Nothing's lit up, but there was the absence of stars on the horizon, which could identify that there was land. And by keeping your eye on it, you could see where that patch moved around to and how to to keep uh, pulling and pulling and pulling. And we pulled the boat. Well, we I pulled the boat um, in until it was close up against the shore disconnected when we got to the point where the boat wouldn't go any closer to the shore because like a Hobie cat is what maybe seven foot wide eight foot wide something like that I'm trying to think it's a bit yeah maybe seven foot wide um when it's on its side in the water with one hull floating and the other hull underwater then uh when you get close to the shore it goes aground in seven foot deep water right so it did I disconnected myself I went up onto this like patch of coral essentially these are like rocks covered in coral and we just had um bare bare feet and and hands like probably had some kind of sandals or something in the bag but uh maybe wasn't expecting what i got into so cut my hands and feet not too badly but enough that very very tired as we were um you know i just added to it right uh, but then was able to see from this little area. And maybe there was a bit of moon at that point. I can't remember now, but we were able to see at a short range distance of like 60 or 70 feet that there was a little bay that didn't have coral. So went back out, uh, pulled the boats off the reef uh, or wherever it was stuck on and uh, pulled it back into deep water and then swam into the bay. And then when it got closer to the beach, was able to go underwater um, pull myself down to the the seabed and get hold of the the, the the catamaran hull which was flooded with water and lift it up so that it could then be pulled uh, Katie my partner at the time pulled and I lifted and then the, the catamaran was able to go like you know 45 degrees underwater and then come up to somewhere near a uh, horizontal position still with one keel underwater but now the whole thing's being dragged up through the the surf and getting close to the shore and then with the 
plugs and all of the um, access panels open, it was able to drain out. And in the end, we were able to get it up to the beach and uh, out the water. But we were on a very small beach, which was completely impregnable. Um, there was no way of getting through the trees. There's loads of lawyer vines and, and uh, climbing uh, shrubs or climbing vines, whatever, that bar the way. There's the trees and the overlap of the trees because nothing's ever thinned. But also in that part of the world, um, Katie and I have been staying on Tulgar, the other island, for uh, four or five days already. And we had realized that the spider's webs were strong enough that if you took a like a whippy stick that you'd enjoy having as a little switch whilst you're walking through the, the woods, you know, maybe like thick pencil kind of diameter and uh, a meter long. Well, take that and like bang it on the web of the spider and the web doesn't break. <laughs> That's how big the spiders were. Like I was thinking that we would explore the interior of the island, which had been described in the book, The Swiftler Isles, which I'd enjoy so much when I was young back at school in the UK. The thing that had brought me to this island, taking this huge journey all the way around Australia from Perth to Melbourne to Sydney, all the way up the coast to Townsville to get on the boat and go out to see these islands, which I'd, you know, had been so positive for me when I was at boarding school as a, a little uh, window on, on freedom or something. And um, the reality was we couldn't get into the interior of the island because it was spider season. And I'd lived in Asia long enough to know, like, there's a season for spiders, right? And when they're out, like, if you're walking through their webs, then you're walking through <laughs> picking up spiders. I have a big scar on my chin, well, big relative to what happened from getting bit by a wood spider in Hong Kong that was on a rope that I picked up in a rope locker um, from the tall ship and it ran up and onto my face. That They can get up to 30 centimeters in diameter. So what's that like? I don't know, 15, 14 inches, something like that. Quite a big size body, like the size of your thumb. Not massive mandibles, and they're actually quite placid. But this guy, I tried to brush him off my face. He just kind of hunkered his body down and sunk his fangs into my chin. And, well, he died on the next swipe uh, that I got him off my face and stood on him. But um, I had been bitten. So I have respect for spiders. That didn't lead to anything worse than really a, a big uh, bee bite, a bee sting, whatever. But um, in Australia, <laughs> on an island in the middle of nowhere, it's not the time to be trying to do um, spider identification certainly in pre-internet days so uh we were respectful of the sliders and stayed out of the interior and anyway probably couldn't have got through as it was with all, everything else that was going on there so we were on the beach there's coral to one side and there's just thick um undergrowth and, and bush running around to the other side impenetrable right up alongside coral on the beach so we had the beach so we had to stay on the beach and the good thing was we you know, we were hydrated and healthy already going into it. Oftentimes when people get into that situation, having come ashore from some kind of uh, altercation at sea, you know, they're already highly uh, demoralized and uh, and uh, lacking nutrients and, and lacking fresh water when they get to the land. We weren't. We'd only been on the water for whatever's the amount of hours I said. As I say, every time I tell the story, it changes. So I'm not quite sure how big the fish is at the moment. It, it definitely happened in one night, so it can't have been much more than uh, five or six hours. I, I think it was about five hours, but uh, that wasn't so bad. But at that point, I will say the effect of tiredness and uh, probably a lot of salt uh, getting into me, I can remember distinctly thinking that I could go and live underwater with the fishes and then I could take off my life jacket and just like be one with the ocean. So 
I'm not sure if that's what people talk about when they say, like, drifting away and drowning is such a pleasant way to go. That water was pretty much near body temperature, but anything else that involves drowning is absolutely awful. But if you're high on salt or poisoned by salt or whatever that is, and in lukewarm water, it's probably not that awful to go that way. But uh, I was far from that. But certainly the other thing physically I was feeling was that the wetsuit which I had on, which sensible enough we had those on, uh, it was a surfing wetsuit and, you know, it's not intended for any kind of swimming. So my inside of my elbows, the underside of my, my, my armpits, the underside of my arms, my groin, back of my knees, they're all very badly chafed by doing breaststroke for hours and hours and hours, towing, towing this down boat. Um, and uh, they were rubbed raw, you know, so getting ashore and getting our wetsuits off and getting into the dry clothes we had and dry bags on board was the first order of the day. Having done that, Katie dealt with the, the wounds I had and, uh, and covered them all up with sterile gauze. And then we needed some fluids. We've been in the water a long time. So we attacked a, a coconut with the husk still on. If you've never done that, it's not like a cartoon or a film. It's just something that you need to know in your own hands. And we didn't have any like big sticks mounted in the floor or cleavers or anything like that. So we found a little nubbin of rock sticking up. Uh, and started to bash the coconut on that. Now, what we did do at the same time is we had a pretty good medical kit with us because I had been an outbound instructor previous to this, even though I was a young fella. It was only like 2020. 20, I was, it was 1999 and I was 22 because I was 23 in yeah, year 2000. So still a, a young fella, but had enough smarts around me to have some good equipment with us on the boat, although not flares, a VHF <laughs> or anything else for signaling, but did have a good medical kit. And in that was a lighter. So we were able to, burn some bits of paper we had and get some dry twigs and stuff out in the forest and then get some bits of wood. And we had a fire going. Great. Um, started to make a bit of a shelter with the boom of the sail and sorry, the boom of the boat and a sail and our life jackets underneath us padding. Okay, good. We've got that worked out. Need hydration. We found this little nubbin of rock and started beating hell out of this uh, coconut until we got the husk off. And I didn't want to crack it and lose the juice because that's really what we were going for so use the trauma shears from my first aid kit to screw in through one of the eyes of the coconut and then get one of the needle covers when you have a cannula in your medical kit the one that makes you know you stick it under the skin to put in an iv drip if you've got a cannula they have a little plastic tube that the needle is inside of to protect it in transit and storage and that tube is perfect as a drinking straw so that went in and we were able to get uh, access to the Coconut juice, which obviously is brilliant for rehydration. So um, the next day, we slept some. The next day, no no help, nobody about. It's, you know, this is islands offshore from the uh, from Australia. Um, it's not going to be like lots of people going by. Uh, so I looked at the damage on the bottom of the boat where it, it, it either cracked being on the trailer for so long coming all the way from Perth or it cracked on the beach the last day we'd used it or whatever it was. Certainly, I had some scotch tape as a as a repair all for for this situation. I scotch taped everything up. I remember rolling three cigarettes for Katie and saying, um, "I'll be back before you've smoked these." <laughs> that was my idea of like, you know, hey, everything's going to be okay. So I sailed off and I sailed to another place on the island and was lucky enough to find. Um, I went ashore and I think I went ashore into like the service area behind the. Um, the, the tourist resort that was on that little island and I, a guy kind of just walked out of one of the the areas of the service area and I must have looked like I god knows what I got all these cuts on my hands and my feet obviously probably got eyes like piss holes in the snow from being knackered from all this other stuff um, I'd sailed the boat there 
and that hadn't been that easy. There wasn't that much wind um, and a lot of salt getting into those exposed cuts now. I was feeling bad the second second day I had them. Um, so he's like, hey, I will help. And that's that's what I wanted to hear. So we got a little tinny, a little Aussie aluminum Sharpie boat, a uh, little outboard on it. Took the... Now, how did we go? First of all, he went straight to go and get Katie off the beach. He knew where we were talking about. And as we were going there, we went past a couple of um, fishermen in another tinny. And they were like, hey, there's some woman on the beach, like, waving a red uh, swimming costume. I'm not sure if she's got a prom. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We know what's going on. So in there, and Katie was beside herself. Hadn't even smoked the cigarettes. Jesus, well, hadn't even smoked the cigarettes. But um, in the boat, okay, everyone's good. We got the uh, the equipment that we had there on the uh, the beach with us, which wasn't much. We went back and got the... Um, we went back to get the catamaran and then we took the catamaran all the way over to the other island to Tulgar where we had our tent and our, all the rest of our stuff. And he's just towing this, um, catamaran, me on the catamaran with the helm and, uh, him towing it behind his, uh, outboard, outboard boat. Um, and, uh, came ashore on the island, got all the tents and everything together, packed it into the tinny. And then God bless him. He, he, he drove us all the way back to mission beach, just outside of, uh, Townsville. And, um, and sort of just, it, well, I will say this, it was very exciting to be on the catamaran because he was going, I guess he had like the rest of his day to get on with. And, uh, it was like 20 knots. I'm like slewing around behind him thinking, God, don't turn the catamaran over now. But so got to the beach and then, um, he literally just was like, okay, you guys are good. Like, yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Like, thanks for saving our lives. And he just turned around and went, just turned around and went. And we, we made a tent on the beach and I believe we slept for 17 hours until our friends turned up who had been scheduled to meet anyway. We were going to go back to Mission Beach that day to meet, uh, Alana and Joe, I believe it was. That's going back a bit. And, um, they kind of found us in the tent on the beach and we told them the story, you know, of what had happened. Uh, God, I haven't thought about that for years. Um, what was funny was that spool forwards like 10 years, I guess, maybe a bit less. Oh, maybe a bit less, actually. Wow. Okay. You start to get your own life like, can't remember how anything was. Go forward maybe only three or four years, actually. And myself and a mate, Bill, were in Thailand, um, basically living on the beach there in another set of adventures. And one night at this bar, we started chatting to this uh, young lady and um this is in Kosamui, that's right, Kosamui on the beach there at um oh what was it called? Is it big near Big Buddha Beach on Kosamui, yeah. And met this young lady and um for some reason or other we started talking about the fact we've been in Australia and then we started telling this story and uh she looked at me like you're kidding me and it was her uncle who was the person that had rescued us off the beach. And he, she knew the story because it was like a family story. Unreal, hey? So my abandoning the boat story is pretty, pretty minor compared to what can happen. I did say in the last one that I talk about Cheeky Rafiki. I guess I've got to do that now. Otherwise, um, I'll forget and that'll be a, a pity because it, it's worth telling. Um, it's a, it's a tragic story. And, uh, you know, you know what I'm going to do? Okay, let me, I will do it in brief now, but I'm going to do a deep dive podcast on what happened there because I don't know what the most up-to-date stuff is. I can only tell it like how I remember it and it's eight years ago now. Let's have a look in another podcast on what happened and let's learn the lessons so that the young men that died on that boat didn't die for nothing. Even if it's just you, me and another couple of hundred people, uh, we'll know, won't we? We'll know what happened. So Cheeky Rafiki was, uh, I believe, a Bavaria 
I think it was like a 40-odd foot Bavaria from the UK, was down in Antigua doing um, race week and all that stuff with us. Uh, the young lads on board weren't hugely experienced. I remember that. Uh, they were certainly very new to it all, but there was a couple of Yachtmaster qualifications, that kind of thing between them. Um, let's find out more about that when we, when we do a deep dive. But basically they set off from Antigua and I don't know if they went to Bermuda, but what finally ends up happening to them, um, happens at kind of the latitude of New York, I believe. So I would imagine they probably went to New York, but in the arc that takes you out across the Atlantic from Antigua, you do go, you know, going back to the UK, you go quite far north. So I'm not saying for certain they went to Bermuda, but whatever happened to them, basically the keel started to move around on the boat. Okay. So imagine you're on board your boat and you're hearing weird noise and stuff and you start picking up the floorboards. Modern boats, you're not looking that far down to the, 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 the top of the keel. So I'm not sure if you really have looked at how your keel is attached to the boat, but the underside, let's just talk about fiberglass boats because obviously, yes, people have metal boats and wooden boats and all the rest of it, but many, many, most people have fiberglass boats. So the keel itself is where all the real, real weight is. You have the hull of the boat and you have the keel of the boat and there's the, the, the head of the keel, like the top of the keel has got bolts protruding out of it. Now on my uh, Whitbread 60, a keel which I've had off in you know the last couple of years, um, it had 14 one inch bolts that go up through the bottom of the boat. Now I don't think keels on eight foot, uh, eight foot boats on 40 foot boats have that much, but they may have eight bolts, big bolts coming up out the keel. There's a, you can take them out the keel, but that's, you know, they're secured into it. And then the keel is offered up. The boat is lowered down onto it and um, lots of 5,200 going in there as a bedding compound, 5,200 sticks, 4200s is the silicon kind of variety which will come undone later on so 5200s you glue it on and then these bolts go down they go down tight i have no idea what they go to in terms of torque but i know that on the whitbread 60 there are a thousand foot pounds they have a special little multiplying tool that allows you to take a very big bar and 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 interact with the socket head but it's also going through a mechanical advantage to be able to transmit that torque to the keel head. So I would imagine on a smaller boat, five or 600 pounds, that sounds about right to me. That thing is meant to be on there, on there, because the whole point of a yacht is that when the your boat ends up on its side, you, that's at the point where really the keel wants to pull it upright with its greatest possible force, right? It's uh, now kind of like a teeter-totter with the, the side of the hull of the boat being the, the totter and the, uh, the the teetering being done between the sails pushing down on one side, the wind in the sails pushing the boat one way, and this keel being lifted up in ultimate stability on the other side. When it gets to horizontal, that's when the boat most wants to stand up. So always with boats, don't be worried about knockdowns. That's when you get into your like, safest zone as long as the deck is sealed and there's no chance of down flooding. It's when they go beyond that that you have a lot less stability very quickly when the keel starts to come up above the point of, uh, of maximum flotation. But I digress. The point being that connection point of the keel to the boat has to be absolute because the keel has inertia and it's sitting still. The boat is what's being tossed around. The hull is what's being tossed around by the, the waves. So the keel is not reacting as quickly to what's going on sort of outside as the boat is. So the boat starts to flex around the top of the keel. It's not that the keel is waggling around under the boat, although that's part of it when the momentum builds up and it starts to pendulum from side to side 
in a specific movement but the actual issue is that the boat rocks away from the top of the keel and what happens is it compresses down on that 5200s which was the sealing rubber gasket and sticky rubber gasket between the keel and the boat and then it starts to open up more space and if you don't catch it very very quickly it'll, the bolts go loose immediately and when the bolts are loose then then it really can start to unwind itself off the bottom of the hull or just that it starts to egg and oval and then figure of eight the holes that it was through until the end it rips itself clear off right so early stages you might be able to tighten it up but as soon as things start to go egg shape and then figure of eight shape um you've you've got a real problem what happened with these young lads, it seems that there's a communication back to the shore saying there is a problem with the keel. Okay, so let's have a think about that. You're on a boat. I, we'll, we'll go through the details again when we do the deep dive. And you're in the middle of the Atlantic. And even if you heave to, the keel's still waggling around because the boat's still being affected by the waves and the keel still has its inertia. Um, what do you do? What do you do? So I played this game at the time with uh, Derek Hatfield, who I was working with, the brilliant canadian sailor who's now lost to us but uh uh he and i were working together driving the uh, another volvo 60 and uh this had just happened and we talked about it and uh, we agreed on this if you're in a situation in the middle of the ocean and the keel looks like it's coming off you need to get the mast off the boat that's how serious it is when those bolts start moving around in the bottom of the boat you have to remove the mast now these young men didn't know that so they were communicated with, and yes, they're heading to land as soon as they can, whichever way it is they were going. They were never found. There was a massive hunt for them. Then the hunt was clear, called off. And then there was so much public pressure that they went back out and continued looking. And then unfortunately, the boat was found uh, just either washed up or just off the shore of Connecticut or Maine, like that kind of part of the world. We'll get the details, but the boat was found and they were gone. Because what will have happened is that the keel came off and then the boat rolled over. It was upside down. And unless there's somehow some way of surviving inside the boat, they can't now get their life raft off. On a race boat, those cut out backs that you see on open cockpits on a race boat, they're good for life rafts as well. Because when the boat's upside down with all of the volume of the coach house roof and the foredeck and side decks and the, the combings and all the rest of the stuff there is, it's not like the boat is down in the water. Uh, and unable, you're unable to get to anything, that open transom at the back of the boat where we often put our life rafts, you know, it's a really bad place in terms of weight being on the back of the boat. But if the boat rolls over, you can get to the life rafts. But can you get to life rafts on your boat if the boat is upside down? Like it becomes very difficult if they're in lockers, if they're inside the boat, if they are in a, a place inside the cockpit, even if they're on the foredeck or something, you can't get to them. They have to be on the outside at the back. And if possible, as close and uh, low down to the water line, close to the tow rail round there, because when the boat's upside down, the tow rail is what's going to be closest to you underwater. The push pit at the back of the boat, the, the rails around the back of the boat will now be like what? Three, four feet underwater. Right? So if that happened to them and it was, it was not expected, then unfortunately they wouldn't be able to get their life raft and they're all lost. So, there was a court case, there was liability, there's, there's a lot to be said about that, let's dive into it another time, but in terms of abandoning your boat, um, let me just put that on the record now, if you're ever in that situation and you see those keel bolts moving, the best thing for you to do is heave the boat to, go to the leeward rigging, unwind all the leeward rigging, remember all of the, you should have quite, 
you will often have quite slack rigging anyway to leeward on on a boat you know if it's being pressed if you've got your sails up and you've got um weight on one side then you can uh on, on one side of the rig then the other side you should be able to get the pins out and get the turnbuckles off and then disconnect the rigging at the shrouds now the forestay and the backstay will still be on and the windward cap shrouds and lowers will be holding everything in a, in a triangle but then what you do is go to the back of the boat and get the companionway hatch open and then have a little piece of rope or rope loop or what have you and you get the tiller and you put pull the tiller to the other side and lash it off and if the boat doesn't turn then it will turn very soon but it probably start turning right then because you're going to turn it uh, uh, away from the wind in the end it's going to start to power up and then you go below okay and there'll be a crash and there'll be a bang and you've already got all of your gear ready and then you get rid of that get rid of that mast you cut all the ropes you cut all the wires you get that thing away from the side of the boat you should have either hydraulic crops with you for cutting away the rig oh we're getting into a discussion here about how to cut away the rig aren't we but you need to get rid of it and if if i say one thing on that subject it's only that normally the quickest way of getting rid of the rig is to just uh take the pins out and unwind the uh, the bottle screws on most boats. All this stuff of cutting the rigging is very, very difficult. Um, the ultimate method is to have a battery-operated grinder in a sealed bag, fully charged, with a zip disc on it, and you operate the zip disc through the bag so that the, the grinder stays dry, dry for the longest period of time and you get rid of the mast. Because if the, the keel is still going to come off, okay? The boat is still going to interact with the keel and it's still going to come off. But I have delivered many 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 uh, benetos off the ship as they're delivered to us from europe in when i lived in hong kong and worked for the um, beneto agents there they come off the ship the keels get put onto a truck the mast oftentimes would get put onto the uh, boat as a uh, you know um like horizontally on chocks and then we drive the whole lot round to our commissioning yard where we'd lift it out put it onto its keel seal it up then put the mast up, put it in the water, then commission the boat. So the stability of the boat without the mast on and no keel is motorboatish. Okay, you, now you've got a motorboat. That might be something that can survive, you, that you can survive in, in the Atlantic. You need to have water containers lashed down low in the bilges. You need all your heavy gear in the center lashed down in the center of the boat. And you may have enough stability from the engine, the water tanks, everything else to keep it at this thing. You keep all the water in the tanks. Even if you put salt water in them, you get as much weight down low as possible. Remember, Mike Golding still came third in the, was it 2000 uh, Vendee Globe? He went aground off uh, New Zealand and then um, his keel came off going up the Atlantic. And he managed to bring his boat home, sister ship of mine, uh, brought it home with uh, full mast reduced sail no keel because you put all the weight inside the boat so in the event of something happening along the lines of cheeky rafiki where you're on the boat and you see the keel head is moving and you're in strong conditions offshore and you believe that you're in a, a life or death situation remove the rig from the boat and you've got a chance and when the keel finally comes off staunch the flow of water coming in have that planned ahead and uh, you should be should be okay. But um, good lord, we're twenty seven minutes in. I haven't started reading yet. <laughs> well, I suppose the point is safety at sea, right? So there you go. There's two experiences that uh, we can now lodge into our heads. Don't separate yourself from the boat at sea. Was why I was telling you the story of me on the little catamaran offshore. Go with the boat. The boat's easier to see. And cheeky Rafiki story. If the keelhead starts moving around, 
that might lead to the abandonment of the vessel or abandon the vessel. But as we've said, if you can keep the vessel under you, do that. But if you think like, hey, this is going to go, then put the life raft over to leeward, right? And then when the boat rolls over, if you can escape out of the boat, if you just sit in the cockpit and wait for it all to happen, when it rolls over, the life raft will be out the back, right? So anywho, let's try and get on. Else we'll just really never get to the end of the chapter. So we had looked already at um, how to toss the life raft over the side and having all the equipment ready and uh, boarding the life raft is the next bit that we've got. He says, yes, there's a book in this as well. It's not just me talking. Oh, and just before we go any further, Please consider going over to YouTube and having a look at the latest video I put out. It's called, um, uh, what is it called? It's called, well, the, the thumbnail you see is called uh, uh, Everything About Winches. And I think that kind of lays it out best. The actual title I have changed a few times because it's better to try and do that as a, a small scale YouTuber and try and find one that works. And I think it's called How Do Sail- How Do Sailboat Winches Work? Because I'm trying to pick a title, which is a question some people might put into the internet. Anyway, beside the point, please consider going clicking on it and putting subscribe in there because it helps massively. And uh, it was a bit of a wet fart, that one, when I released it because I then immediately released 92 episodes of the Mariner podcast and uh, kind of messed up the whole thing. But boarding the life raft. Remove sharp objects from your person, such as keys attached to a belt clip, before entering the raft. Okay, that's unlikely because you should be going in with your um, gear on, you know, your your Fowley gear. But you could look at the fact that your uh, Leatherman, is it definitely secured away that the, the it can't kind of get out and get free? You don't have the, the top of the Leatherman or Gerber, um, you know, un, the Velcro not secured because that could get loose inside. If you have a uh, some kind of uh, knife that you have on your belt, consider what you're going to be doing with that. Um, but pretty much everything else that we have as we step into our life raft it's not the same as when you go down the slide on an airplane because people could have goodness knows what with them you're not you're not gonna have a pen in your hand as you go into the life raft are you but um keep it considered certainly i think the more important thing is that if you're throwing other equipment into the life raft from the boat that you think might be useful don't throw anything sharp in that might be the other version of that which is more more useful Try to climb directly into the life raft from the boat. The strongest and heaviest person should board the raft first to stabilize it and to help others. Yeah, don't be the hero. If you're the big one, get inside. The hero thing is to ballast down the boat, ballast down the life raft. As each person gets in, they should move out of the way of the entrance and balance the raft as others board. Okay, this is not going to be like in the swimming pool. If you've done your STCWs, you've done any kind of life raft training, you know, let's all bear in mind that 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 training oftentimes is utter bullshit. It is not like that. And I don't think it's a good idea really to always have your training done in such a way that by the end of it, you say to folks, we had a pool day today. You should have a experience in the training which is similar to what a lot of the fire training is now for for STCWs. STCWs is the safety training for crew and watch keepers. The latest um, uh, moratorium on this is was made in 2014 as to what it's meant to include. Is it 2014 or 2010? Sorry, 2010. And um, the uh, I have got uh, STCW95 stuck in my brain because that's what it was forever, but it's actually STCW10 now. And it's um, the last time it was kind of ratified into proper training for mariners so it covers uh, safety and social responsibility first aid fire and uh floats basically things life rafts and, and what you do in the water the fire training used to be like putting out a you know paper fire in a in a, in a waste paper basket with a fire extinguisher and again 
meaningless if you ever have to go into the engine room of a of a of a super yacht or something which has got you know high pressure fuel systems and electronics and batteries and a halon system and co2 monitors and fire alarms going off and you've got flash gear on and a hose and like if you've just done a, a carbonaceous fire in a bucket with your instructor as instructor you're not helping folks what I did in South Africa last time I did serious fire training was uh, inside a series of containers which have been laid out as uh, things to go and find bodies that were in there, you know, come and find actual other participants in the course who were then <clears throat> aided outside. Uh, we've all got breathing gear on like a fireman would wear, BAs. Um, then the other containers which were joined together to create kind of maze with all kinds of fires in it. And the final one had a, a, a an oil fire in it, which was big, like... I know five, six foot vat of, of, of oil or sunny oil, uh, uh, in a shallow five or six foot across a pan. I think it'd be more accurate. It wasn't like a vat of oil that was on fire, but it was a five or six foot diameter oil fire and it was bloody hot. It was roasting hot. And there was an instructor in there in a reflective suit <clears throat> sat on a bucket in the corner and we went in with our hose on spray and we've all got no like, cotton so already soaked down cotton um uh overalls on and just so hot so hot and ba gear on you can't see what's going on and you start to get that first inkling of like what is fire like most of my experiences of fire i'm in charge like yeah here we go bucket of water and you're gone or i'm going to just make sure there's nothing else in the fuel pile and then you'll be gone by tomorrow if it's a bonfire or something but when you've got a fire that needs to go out and it's bigger than anything you've ever seen before it's uh it's a real wake-up call so that's good training we want to train hard and fight easy right well it should be the same with life rafts and the way to really know that you've had good training is to go to the royal national lifeboat institute's center in the uk um it's in oh it's where the ferry goes from pool it's in pool p-o-o-l-e in um dorset is that correct down in the south of the uk and uh, there the royal national lifeboats uh trains its crews and it's a wave pool and the strobe lights and there's wind and uh, you get a life raft there that is a pretty much as close as you're going to ever get to doing the real training uh, at sea so don't be thinking oh, well, i'll get into the life raft and i'll do this and do that it's going to be a total shit storm everything's going sideways you're now giving up on the boat and you've decided to get into like an inflatable <laughs> like a piece of equipment that kind of looks like stuff you use at the beach for the day you know to have fun and with your kids and now that's going to save your life the only thing you've got after that is the flotation of your body and your life jacket and whatever gear you've got on like it gets real bad real quick so take it seriously as you go down into the life raft take it easy no heroing it it'd be terrible to go in there and have a cracked ankle as your final departing shot on boat ownership right um, it says avoid jumping if at all possible uh, you risk injuring yourself or others already in the raft do not jump onto the canopy if you have to jump the maximum recommended height is two meters two meters is enough Two meters enough. I know a lot of adults that would be a bit shady about jumping off two meters into water. I used to do an activity with um, people jumping more like three and a half, four meters down into the water in Hong Kong and a lot of refusals. And then what we do is there was a set of steps and we'd go down the steps and some people, their fear level was still at two meters, too problematic. You could go all the way down to about half a meter. So, you know, 
it's the end of the world. The boat's pitching everywhere. You've got a pitching, moving orange life raft in front of you, and you can't believe the fact that you're getting off. Your hands are freezing cold. Um, everything is in motion. All the gear is swirling around inside the life raft. The sails are flogging. All this stuff's going on. And then you have to jump down two meters into a boat. Like If you can do it at all, it's better to go into it um, from a slightly lower height. But, you know, whatever's required. The, not jumping on the canopy. The canopy has got a big inflatable arch tube on it, and uh, it has more of an ability to toss you off than you might be thinking. You might jump on there and then just get thrown into the water. Spread the impact, it says, of the, uh, spread the impact load rather by holding your feet slightly apart and your arms out. That's a very good point. And if you go into shallow water, we know to do that. The kind of uh, a water entering position is kind of a bit like a bit like a starfish, but not exactly, you know, a bit, a bit more cagey about your genitals and things, but um, jumping in to slow yourself down, to spread the load out, and also to have the biggest possible chance of getting hold of one of the ropes or one of the edges of the life raft, which are going to be there and just get entangled in it. It's better to get entangled in it and be pulled in by everybody else than to um, jump cleverly down onto the canopy and then be flicked off into the ocean. It says, remember to load the grab bag and extras. Okay, so the grab bag, as we said, is not something to go and find. You should know exactly where it is. You should know what's in it. I personally always keep a lot of extra like um, uh, trail mix bars and not chocolate bars per se, but you can get chocolate covered trail mix bars. Um, You're going to have to ration them out. You're not going to eat any of them on the first day. If you are already deficient going into the life raft and you've got your seasickness tablets, it might be worth having a little bite of something to eat then because if you haven't eaten for 24 hours because it was the storm of your life and you just hadn't, it might be worth having something then. Chocolate and those things, remember, you can just put it in your mouth and if you can't swallow anything, you just feel too ill, just think I am being proactive in saving my own life and just have it in your mouth and just try and have a little bite and just swill it round and round and round and round and round. You at least you'll get some sugar through your lips and interior surfaces of your mouth. <clears throat> it says uh, leave any un- uh, leave any injured crew to the last but one. OK, interesting. If they enter early, other people may make their injuries worse if they land on them. Yeah, good point. Get the injured aboard the raft before the last able person leaves the boat. All right, that sounds pretty pretty sensible. God help you if you've already got injured people and you have to get in a life raft late. Trying to secure yourself in the life raft. What happens is that if there's water in the life raft or any kind of weight, it all pulls at the center, uh, furthest away from the support of the life raft, the support tubes, and then it's like this uh, a funnel, and everybody ends up in the center, bump, bumping off each other, having like cracked ribs or something like that. At that point, would be pretty miserable. Um, entering the water only enter the water if you are unable to board the raft direct from the boat. Inflate your life jacket if possible. Enter the water slowly, either by lowering yourself on a rope or by using the boat's fixed or emergency boarding ladder. This will minimize the effects of cold water shock. Well, maybe. Look, here's the deal. If, if you've ever been at anchor on the boat and there's lots of waves in the anchorage, I remember once being, I remember two really bad times. One time was with Merry Maid, which was a 110-year-old, 110-foot um, gaff schooner. No, not schooner. She was She's a cutter, but, sorry, beg your pardon, um, kind of like a J-class. In fact, she is kind of the originator, the grandmother of the J-class boats, but... Um, we had a on anchor off Kosamui, completely different time, just happened to be Kosamui in the story. And the wind and the waves were at 90 degrees to each other. And there was a lot of waves rolling into the 
Gulf of Thailand and the wind was keeping the boat at 90 degrees to them. And she probably had like, uh, I don't know, like eight foot of freeboard, something like that, but very deep, very, very deep. She probably drew like 16 foot, 17 foot, something like that. So lots of acreage under the boat. And I can remember when we got on and off that boat for the days that we were there, basically the tender would come up to level with the deck Okay, and you step through the gate onto it in a hurry, and then the tender would just <laughs> there was this unbelievable view as the side of the boat went rushing past, and then the water line went rushing past, and then a lot of red anti foul and a big curving hull went past, and then it would stop and start rolling back the other way, and all this red would go past, and the water line would go past, and you'd pop up next to the gate again, and then another person would step on it was treacherous and the same thing same boat actually in hong kong uh just off of um power station beach on on llama had it at anchor there and again in a storm there it was rolling like a pig oh god help being on an old classic boat on uh, on a mooring hey they uh, roll like dogs and um she was awful with those huge masts of, of hers the roll inertia just uh, meant that she went from like 30 degrees one side to 30 degrees the other but I learned, as we all have learned at that time, in that kind of situation, um, what can happen is that you jump off and then the boat moves on top of you, right? So it'd be awful to kind of like slither off the side of the boat and then with maybe a more modern boat, which has got flatter undersides for the boat to then roll over and just hit you, okay? So it shows me a picture here in the book of someone going down the transom ladder on a boat with a little sugar scoop on the back of it um, and the water is just at the normal water line that it would be on the boat. I think they're showing like there's some kind of fire or something going on. But, you know, any kind of waves, if the boat's head to the waves or if it's beam onto the waves, that water is going to be sluicing up and back down and up and back down. And what will happen is if the boat lands in the water, it will send a wave away from itself and it will wash you away from itself or it will hit you before it's able to do that. So climbing into the water, yes, might help you from... Um, cold water shock but that doesn't really matter if you just had a boat land on your head all right so do what's sensible it says here next if a slow entry is not possible then go to a part of the boat where the descent into the water is lowest or upwind of the fire and smoke it could be like at the shrouds steady yourself and check below for debris and other people absolutely although below is probably like just below your feet inflate your life jacket place one arm over the top of the jacket to prevent it from jumping up when you enter the water Use your other hand to cover your airway. Look ahead to stop yourself from toppling forward. Check the area is clear and step off the side of the boat. Okay, so let's just review that. So make sure it's safe where you're jumping in. Make sure your life jacket has inflated before you enter the water. When you're doing the life raft and life jacket day in your training for safety on, they'll have you jump in the water with the life jacket deflated and then looking for it to inflate. So they're checking the operation of your jacket and um, giving you the experience of knowing what that's like okay the fact is blow it up beforehand because if it doesn't go off in the water you've now got a problem um, look and make sure there's no debris make sure your crotch strap is done up it's not going to stop the life jacket from flying off over your head because your hands are going to do that but it's going to be very hard to find all the parts of it later on when you're in the water floating okay if you have something like an epurb with you uh, and I mean that story as a personal EPUB rather than the boat's EPUB. If you have one that's like in a sleeve or attached to your life jacket somewhere, some people do a PLB, a personal life-saving beacon. Um, make sure that's where it needs to be and, and ready to go and secure because you're about to expose it to a lot of hydraulic force as you jump into the water. Um, 
make sure that oh yeah make sure your life jacket is not under your jacket i've got to say i've done that so many times say put a jacket on over a life jacket i will only say this i wear an xl jacket all the time at sea and i'm a medium so there i have done this experiment there is lots of room for the jacket to inflate inside sorry for the life jacket to inflate inside the jacket but it's not nice if you had any kind of uh heart issues the compression on your chest if you can't get the zip open is awful plus you have a much larger volume of water running around inside the jacket with you plus more likely to happen is that the bust zips on the front the zip busts rather on the front of it and then you don't have the insulating effects of the jacket we've all done it you've got your life jacket on it's pretty warm on deck it starts to blow <clears throat> you put your jacket on over the top of it because it's only gonna take a second and then two hours later you've still got your waterproof jacket on on the outside of your life jacket don't don't do it you know as soon as you can get the jacket under the life jacket as it's intended so you've done all that you get your life jacket inflated you place one arm over the top of the life jacket sort of going across and touching your other shoulder you actually grab hold of the straps of your life jacket so you are holding that shit hard against you and then you put your hand over your nose and mouth and you do that because you are physically clamping your nose and your mouth shut so you cannot engage in this thing called an involuntary gasp which is when it's very cold you go in the water and you can suck air into your lungs okay not just a hurt but a good amount and even if you can clear it when you're in the water which is going to be difficult because you can't lean forward the point is that that seawater contains flora and fauna which will decompose over time and you might be in the life raft for a couple of days or you might get onto somebody else's boat after you've been rescued. That crap is going to be in your lungs and it's going to start breaking down. And then you have a chance of pulmonary edema, water in your lungs, and you go into something called secondary drowning because you had a lot of foreign matter enter your lungs quite deep down into the bronchial tubes, down into the alveoli areas. And now you've got bits of seaweed and fish eggs and, you know, whatever else was floating around the ocean when you breathed in, that's now down in there and it's rotting whilst you try and uh, cough it out. So put your hand firmly over your mouth and nose, hold down your life jacket. And then what you do is you look directly ahead of you because what will happen otherwise is that you'll follow your head and you don't want to go in face first because that's just asking for more injury right so you check the water clamp your life jacket clamp your mouth look out say your prayers off you go big step okay and in you go into the water you can open your legs when you get into the water um if you're entering from any kind of greater height then you do need to have your legs together at the point of impact but as soon as that your feet have gone into the water go into the starfish and that'll stop you going too far underwater all right that's all pretty obvious stuff, but it, that's what we're here for. That's why we're reading this book. That's why we're going through this in this way, just to remind you, just to say it again. Hey, if this ever happens, if you're that person, if statistics don't pass you by and it's actually you this time going in the water, then make sure you cover your mouth, clamp your life jacket down, look out and step into the water and you have decreased the risk at that point. Where does it go wrong? on these kind of situations there are so many red flags flying it could go wrong at any point it could crack your ankle as you go into the life raft someone could throw a piece of equipment in and hit you on the head the waves could rip the canopy off the whole life raft could be turned upside down and all the friends you went to school with all die because they were in the life raft with you because it was just meant to be fun what the hell are we doing out here nobody is expecting this stuff it's not like training okay so just go over this stuff once or twice a year in your mind and you might be pre-positioned to help yourself.
He continues, at night or in heavy weather, it may be prudent to clip your safety harness to the life raft painter and pull yourself along it until you reach the raft. Well, okay, we'll talk about that in a second. While waiting to get into the raft, hook your arm through the lifelines fixed around the outside of the raft. Cold, numbs hands, cold, numb hands, rather, will be unable to grip the lifeline. Do not let go until you are on board the raft. Okay, so let's just break that down a little bit. It's worrying whenever you're clipped onto anything at sea that's attached to you and to something else. You should always be nervous, okay? Unless you've got like bare foot water skiing experience and this thing's doing, you know, the 25, 30 knots you need to be up on the plane on your balls of your feet. Everything else is called drowning where you're being towed along. Um, can I give any examples here? Probably. <laughs> Let's have a thing. All right. Two examples, both from the Clipper race. Number one was in the middle, no, not middle, on the western side of the Pacific, Piers Duden, one of the skippers of the, one of the Clipper boats, uh, Hull and Humber, broke his leg. He was on the side deck and a wave washed down the deck, washed him over, wrapped his leg around the stanchion and broke his leg. Okay, so he was able to get inside the boat. I think, uh, I think maybe he made contact with Clipper and told him what had happened and then, put a load of drugs in his arm and tapped out. Cause I believe it was a pretty nasty compound fracture. His crew at that point did not have enough people on board with enough experience to just sail themselves across the Atlantic, uh, the Pacific rather. And at the time there was a, a hurricane that was the size of the Pacific. Basically, this would have been February of 2010. If you want to look it up, it was a massive storm. And, um, the uh there was no way to be upwind back to japan although we were only a couple of hundred miles from japan or that boat was i was somewhere completely different having my own adventure but um what they decided to do was they brought two boats together and in relatively calm seas the skipper of australia brendan hall who we've mentioned previously he's got that book called team spirit which is all about the clipper race at that time and lessons in management that came and, and team leadership that came from it brendan was transferred from his boat where he happened to have some crew members who were much more experienced than was the norm for Clipper. And one of them was actually an ocean master and was there already as one of Brendan's watch leaders, but he was able to legally take over that boat. So they've got all the right people with all the right qualifications on the boat Australia. And the Australian skipper, Brendan, is now being transferred across to Holland Humber, who has an incapacitated skipper. And the first thing Brendan's going to orchestrate is uh, Piers with his broken leg being taken off onto a uh, a cargo ship which had come uh, to to help out. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to attach a spinnaker sheet to Brendan and then attach on from that's been transferred from uh, Holland Humber and they're going to attach another one to him which is being let out from Australia and then he's going to be like between these two ropes and they won't be able to lose him right because he's between the two boats on these spinnaker sheets, which just, just bear in mind, they're like three quarter inch spinnaker sheets, right? Um, because of the size of the boats, these are 68 foot, 40 ton boats in the middle of the ocean, trying to transfer someone between them. Um, it worked out. Brendan made it across, made a great job of, uh, of facilitating Holland Humber getting to the other side safely. His boat got to the other side, but I think Brendan would be the first to say that there's better ways of doing that maneuver. Um, you end up in the water being dragged around, being dragged around the water. If anything is moving at more than four knots, you'll be hydroplaned underwater immediately. 
Okay. Perhaps what they could have done is connected the two ropes together, which is a good idea because they're very, very long and the boats don't have to be exactly there. They could just steam slowly forwards, you know, with the engines. And then at the joint of the ropes, they could tie the painter of the dinghy, which they also had, and put Brendan in the dinghy. And then the dinghy can slew around and do whatever. And if the rope goes underwater or not, or tight or breaks or whatever, he's still in a dinghy, right? But I think uh, there were other ways of doing that. Another time that it happened um, was uh, for me actually coming, oh, earlier in that leg, wasn't it? Yeah, I was coming out of Qingdao and um, we got to this point where Oh no, it was somewhere different. Oh, we wanted to put, that's right. We were going to put somebody in the water to look at the rudder, but we'd already had the experience I'm going to explain to you. So we didn't. Okay. So what happened previously at some point on the race, I don't know where, was we thought we had something on the hull or we did have something on the hull. We put a crew member in the water at flat, calm conditions, no sails up. And as soon as he went into the water, you know, he jumps in, he goes under a little bit and then he started to, get pulled by the rope that was attached to him because the idea was for him to go down and get this thing it was a a fishing net off the rudder virtually immediately he started getting pulled underwater because even though we were hardly moving it was enough to pull him under like petrifying for me as a skipper i'm like i'm drowning this guy i'm drowning him so all i could do was say to the guys who were on the coffee grinder controlling the spinnaker sheet that we were using to you know to, to to make sure he didn't get lost was grind as hard as you possibly can and we dragged him underwater back up to the side of the boat. It was probably only 20 foot out the back of the boat and, and 20 foot along the side of the boat or something like that. And he was moving fast. And, you know, and he'd taken a big breath before he went under. I'm pretty sure he did anyway. <laughs> um, it Certainly by the time he came out of the water, whatever the actual story was, it's all too long ago to remember the details now. It wasn't that bad. But we all agreed we are not putting people in the water again unless it's absolutely... Well, it would have to be more than like... It would have to be that there's two people are stuck on the bottom of the boat and one person's being sent to get them off because uh if there's one person down there all that's gonna happen is you're gonna kill somebody else sending them down to help you know what i'm saying it's like you just can't put people in the water i don't know how else to put that so if you're in a situation where you're a life raft and you've now tethered on to the painter of the life raft you don't want to be in a situation where the life raft is getting blown around because it's a sail. <clears throat> it will move wherever the wind sends it. It is not hydraulically locked in the water, which you are. So if you're hydraulically locked and it's a sail and you're tied to each other, then that means that you've become its power anchor and it's definitely going to drag you underwater. So um, if it's still tied onto the boat and the life raft is, you know, a decent, probably a hundred foot away. It could be maximum on its tether or less if you've tied it off a bit shorter and you clip onto that. Well, that's great. That's like a safety line to get you from one point to the other, right? But don't still be attached to it. If the life raft suddenly, if the something on the boat gives way, if it lets go or whatever, you've got to get that thing off. So what I would say is that I see a picture here of somebody um, clipping the uh, actual... Um, clip of their safety tether whatever gib hook or whatever it is you've got on your safety tether they've got that clipped onto the painter what can happen is that they go into kind of like a buckling mode where they you've had it when you're walking down the deck and then like your tether gets stuck you can't move it any further because it's sort of turned into a buckle using the safety part of the gib hook and the top of the hook the 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 the, the rope that's on your side deck or the flat tape that's on your side deck starts to buckle and it won't move so what you could do instead is put your safety tether around the painter, go into the life raft and clip it back onto yourself. 
and then you have control of the clip. It's on you. And if the painter breaks on the boat or something happens, like if the knot comes undone, it'll just pass through and it'd be gone. Now you'll be in the water on your own. That might be pretty bloody awful, but it's probably better than being dragged and drowned, right? So let's not get into that. That's why we use back tow life jackets from Team O for everything possible to avoid being towed from the front because that's a death death knell. All right, how are we doing? We're just coming up to 55 minutes here. <clears throat> Isaac's still asleep. That's good. And uh, I see that with this app I'm using directly through my uh, podcast um, host, Podbean, I can record up to 90 minutes. So we won't go past 90 minutes. At one hour here, is it imprudent for me to say, oh, you know what? I was going to give myself a bit of an advertisement and talk about um, the uh, podcast uh the Mariner's Library. We know there's all these stories I'm getting into at the moment, this anthology of uh, uh, White Sail Shaking by Ira Henry Freeman, which is a wonderful collection of sailing stories. But I just wanted to jump in here and say, I do have a potential sponsor lined up for this podcast, but I am absolutely militant about making sure that if I'm going to talk to you about some product that I really trust the product. I worked for Black's Outdoor Equipment uh, Shops in the UK when I was young. And I remember I uh, I won uh, 100% with a mystery shopper that came in. Um, I can really get into explaining something duh, and, uh, and be excited about providing you with knowledge on something that I think is going to be helpful to you. If I have a product or a service that I'm going to advertise through the podcast and you're going to have to sit through the adverts, it wants to be something that's reliable, right? Like rock solid. Now, the company that is sitting in the wings, here's the deal. Normally, they will offer people who are they call like introducers or whatever, whatever the name is that they give people that do advertisements through social media. They uh, will give me 20% of what the person pays as an insurance premium. And to me, that seemed a bit nutty. That seems like quite a lot. So I said to them, hey, why don't you give my listeners and viewers 10% off and I'll take percent 10% and then everybody's winning and I get to monetize the podcast and then, you know, focus on this and do a better job. That's what we all want. The problem is it's an insurance company and as an insurance company, I get into a field very quickly. Like, well, the insurance man is the insurance salesman is never a trustworthy person in my stereotype of the world. And I would be beside myself if I thought that somebody was trusting in some product I had put my name behind, then it was, uh, it was bullshit. So <clears throat> the chief operating officer of the insurance company has said that she will answer questions that are posted by me to try and check this product and make sure it's solid. So there's only one of me now, you know, two heads are better than one. And if there's a couple of hundred of us still listening to this podcast, and involved in this podcast, could we put a couple of hundred heads together? If you have a boat and you're going to get it insured, you're going to have to probably go to an insurance broker and they're going to give you a policy and tell you what it will cover. And then you pay the money and you're expecting that if anything goes wrong, these people are going to give you money. Okay. What other questions that will help me to ensure that this is a good product before I put it out there? And I say this because... The company's name is Edward William. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast all the way through, I did do an advert for them previously. And actually, just off one advert, you know, I got a little commission off it. It was brilliant. It was a great way of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, doing the podcast and having some 
um, returned from it. And then immediately people started contacting me and saying, well, it was like two people and said, Edward William have got a reputation in some corners of the internet for, for not paying out on their policies. So I immediately went to the internet and I found out two things. Yes, that's true. But yes, that's also true for any other maritime uh, insurance company you can think of, including Generali, Pantaneous, uh, Towergate uh, in the UK, um, anybody and everything that you can think of. Somebody somewhere has not got their money out of them and has got angry words to say about it online. So this is what I want to say. <clears throat> the product that they are providing, I know loads of people that have got Edward William policies. I know big boats that have got Edward William policies. I know people like one of our listeners here, Kevin Le Poivin, who's out. Kevin Poivin, I've got to get his name right, is in the um, in the Global Solo Challenge right now at sea. And Edward William are his insurers. Now, is he a fool? I don't think he is. You know, what's going on, I think, is that they provide a realistically priced product but they don't cover you for like every little thing that happens. But for me as a sailor, I don't want them to cover every little thing that happens. If I get a bump on the boat, I'll fix it. I want them to cover public liability stuff, crew that get injured through my own negligence, anything that happens because of me, I want covered. But anything which is like harmful on me, like, oh, you know, the, the mast snapped or the sail got ripped or someone stole your stuff because you didn't lock the boat up or you anchored somewhere daft where people next to that stuff's on me because that's the responsibility I take as a sailor every time I go afloat. I just want to make sure that all my legal responsibilities are covered and all my moral responsibilities are covered to those who are around me and on the boat. Now, if they do cover that and the price is reasonable, I've got to say... I would love to be the person that can bring that to you because marine insurance is a nightmare, a nightmare. I got to this point where I'm interacting with Edward William in the way that I am because we went through so many yacht brokers, uh, sorry, yacht insurance brokers trying to get insurance for the big boats post Ukraine conflict, post COVID, because all the insurance companies have changed their risk profiles, lowered their risk profile that they don't want to insure cruisers who are off in XYZ corner of the world. They don't want to insure racers because the stuff that they cover on their policies, they're going to be stuck holding the baby for everything. So if a company, we've got a win-win here. If we can work out that Edward William are full of shit, then we can advertise that. If we can work out they're okay and they've got a good product, brilliant, then we've got that. And if, you know, at the end of the day, it's just not a good fit, then I won't go for it. But there isn't many other people <laughs> offering insurance at the moment. So I look at the end of the day, I want you to give me the questions which will help me to identify, are these people reliable? Will they pay out on what they say is in their policy? What I can see is in the policy. If we can confirm all of that, then we all go into it knowingly. What I'll do is collate together. I'll mention this a few more times, collate together the questions, and then let's put that to them um, and uh, get the answers. And if it's good, then I'll be able to offer you that code and we can move forward. But um, let's not get too caught up in that now, but I thought I'd share that with you. Any questions that you think, and not like, hey, you didn't pay out on my whatever, like we're past that bit. Even I know Edward William have changed the people that they're underwritten by. I've been doing my research as well. I want to know, are they are they real? Because if they are, blimey, that would be good. Who wants to pay out loads for marine insurance? The last policy I had with a big company out of Europe was you know, nearly 30,000 US dollars 
for one boat for one year for the sailing that we were doing. And post-Ukraine conflict, it couldn't even look at a policy. Edward William moved me into a policy which looks great as long as it's as good as it should be. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to know your experiences with uh, ins- well, we can do that as well. Maybe we should. Maybe I should have done eyes for insurance instead of eyes for information. But um, uh, today, let's get questions for the COO. All right, let's move on. Uh, we are coming up to an hour and five minutes. We've got 25 minutes to go. We have jumped into the life raft. It says rapid inversion and capsize. Although rare, vessels will capsize either in extreme conditions or in the event of a catastrophic keel failure. Well, we talked about that. In the case of a multi-hull, once inverted, the vessel will not self-right. I've spent so much time trying to work out how I would flip a catamaran back over. Um, I think there is a way of doing it by flooding like the forward half of one of the hulls. But it's, uh, yeah, you need like a power anchor. You need quite a lot of wind blowing. You need one hull flood and not flood anything else. Like It becomes a bit of a mess. But basically, once inverted, it's not coming over. Uh, in the case of a monohull, the vessel will normally self-right, yeah, unless you've lost the keel. However, if the vessel has lost its keel, then with the mast and sail in the water, the vessel will not return to the upright position. The mast fills with water. Those pockets on the bottom of the life raft that fill with water, the water can get in and out of the pockets through the holes in which it entered. But it doesn't. It doesn't move that fast. It would have to pass through an aperture to move. So it just then has like inertia and it's connected enough to the life raft that we call it water ballast. The mast fills with water. Once it's filled, it ain't coming back up. Like the internal volume of your mast filled with water is hundreds of kilos. Hundreds of kilos of water is under the boat. And whilst they're neutrally buoyant, the mast can't move because of the inertia it now has. And I hope I'm, I messed up the word inertia momentum the other day, but I mean that the inability or the, the, the lack of desire of the thing to move because of its mass, that's inertia, right? Well, now the mass is going from, it weighed a hundred kilos. Now it weighs 400 kilos and the boat won't flip back over because of it. It can't lift the mast up. Well, it won't move because of inertia and then it won't be able to pick it up. Will it? it won't be able to lift it up to the surface, I guess is the point. Causes of keel failure. Oh, here we go. This is exactly it. Well, that's great. As a general rule, the keel on a well-built vessel will be both secure and reliable. However, more modern yachts will tend to have a smaller connection point between the hull and the keel with more stress placed on that connection point. Over time, either through grounding or general wear and tear, it is possible for structural weakness to develop and ultimately for the keel to hull connection to fail. To fail. Okay. If you strike your boat on the bottom, you have to mark it in the log. You need to have a little bit, uh, a way of doing it where it's off to one side. Those things at the back of the log book, which is like visitors, don't worry about that. Cross that out. Put groundings and write something useful. And you have to be honest about the speed. Okay. If you don't know what the speed was, guess it and then multiply it by 1.5. Add 50%. There's no reason not to. If you get to a point where you're like, man, I've got three groundings here, which are all at five, six knots. You're going to have to do something about that. Okay. I helped out with a boat in Hong Kong years ago, which was a Grand Soleil 45, I remember correctly, owned by a guy called Glenn. Glenn, what was his name? It was called Blackjack the Boat. Yes. Glenn Dixon. 
No, that doesn't sound quite right. Doesn't matter. Glenn Smith, that was his name. And uh, I used to race on the boat and I'm pretty like aware, you know, of stuff. This is kind of my thing. And he said to me after the incident, which the day I wasn't sailing, he said, if you'd been on board, you would have you would have saved us because they used to drink on the way back in from the races. And I never would because my gig is you you only drink when it's before it's untied and after it's tied up. Right. There's there's no place for alcohol on boats for me in what I do. I, I can only remember having a drink on a boat like maybe twice ever in my life. And at both times, I literally looked at the owner of the vessel and said, after this, I am not in any way, you know, here to help you. I'm a passenger like everybody else. Okay, no problem. And had some drinks. But the point is they were drinking on the way back in. They had the spinnaker up after a nice downwind finish and uh, they ran into a rock and they did it. Glenn said, I think between five and seven knots, but with the kite pulling from the top of the rig and that consistent pull and with a torpedo shaped keel, the stopping moment is like kind of absolute. It's not like it's a far shaped keel, you know, the far, like far design house F-A-R-R with a kind of back swung, a uh, back uh, swept rather keel where it will ride over slightly where T keel, it just stopped dead. And um, the only kind of uh, uh, suspension system in it, the only suspre- suppression is the fact that the boat will dip heavily at the front because it suddenly pivots around the obstacle underwater and if it's a very flat kind of racy-ish type modernish boat there's so much um primary stability in such a large area it won't dip very much at the front so it's just it's a full-on impact and he had this impact and those grand soleils at the time like um x yachts have a big galvanized frame inside it was a thing that was coming out it's like god this boat's really strong well, that galvanized frame inside the boat was pulled down out of shape between five and 10 centimeters. And it was pushed up at the back by a good two or three centimeters. That's the effect that coming to stop at between five and seven knots with a kite had on, on a modern boat. You know, a, a, a boat which has got a keel and a rudder underwater and quite flat sections intended to be a bit racy, but a cruising marina-ish boat the rest of the time. Nothing too fancy. Fiberglass hull. And that connection point, as the book says, is very stressed these days. Uh, uh, a traditional vessel like a folk boat, something like that, they carry their weight in a completely different way with so much more structure. Those keels, when they start to get uh, too much stress on them, if it doesn't snap it off, something somewhere is going wrong. So mark down the back of the book what damage you've had and you know how do you estimate what's, what's too much? Um, You've got to use your best judgment and the best, I, I can't give you that, but I'd say this, if there's doubt, then there's no doubt. It's time to get the boat out, separate the keel, deal with it all, look at the keel bolts, pull them, check them, whatever you need to do, replace them, put them back in and then you know, because it's what you know that gets you safely through these things at sea, right? Not that you think that that's not worth anything. Avoiding keel failure. Keel bolts should be regularly checked to ensure that they are secure. Similarly, the area inside the hull around the keel bolts and forward, aft and to both sides of the keel attachment should be regularly inspected for any signs of cracks, separation or delamination. An external check of the keel to hull join or any other joining structure such as a fin to the bulb should be carried out each time the boat is out of the water. So if you have a torpedo on the bottom of your keel then you have two joints you have the joint between the keel which is the flat plate and the keel bulb 
which is at the bottom, and you have the joint between the keel plate and the boat, okay, the underside of the hull, the underside of the canoe body, we call it. So you need to check two places. If you've got like a solid plate of metal hanging down under the boat, then you've just got that uh, the joint at the top of the keel where it meets the, the boat. And if you've got a more traditional vessel, then it's bolted through in such a manner where it should be a lot more restrained and a lot less likely to have this kind of problem. Um, an external check of the keel hoard joint. Yes, we said that. Uh, okay, in the event that anything suspicious is found, it is prudent to have a qualified marine surveyor carry out an inspection. Okay, it's about 500 bucks. It's about half a boat voucher to get someone to come and look at stuff. It's going to be a couple of boat vouchers. That's a thousand US to get a report. Um, the problem with boating often is that you will often try and get the boat, which is at the limit of what you can afford initially. And then you will spend the entire time trying to avoid putting any more money into it because you bought what was at the limit of your costs. It is better with a boat to understand the operating costs for a year or five years or 10 years or whatever the lifespan is going to be of this boat that you've decided upon and say, you know, if you said like, okay, realistically, we had our last boat for three years, we're moving up, we want to have the next one for five to six years. So we'll budget for seven years and we'll budget that we're going to replace the sails twice at that time because we're going to replace them at the beginning now and we're going to replace them towards the end and then we're going to sell it with newer sales. That's intelligent. Don't sell trash. You get trash prices, right? You say we're going to paint it now and we're going to paint it at the end, right? So it's two coats of paint above the waterline. We're going to need anti-foul every year. We're going to need to service the engine. We're going to need to replace the rigging once. Like You can work it all out and then work out what the costs are going to be and then work out what those costs are going to be for different size boats. It takes about two thirds more paint to cover a 40 footer than a 30 footer and you need ground tackle almost twice as heavy and twice as big and long and everything else for a 40 footer than a 30 footer i think there's a book called um 35 foot is enough by lynn and larry pardy and in that i believe the opening parts of that they're talking about the fact that it's such a big step up because a boat when it's longer on the waterline is also bigger in almost every other metric right and you have to pay for that so the point being um you can work out what the prices are and then work out what you're likely to for. It might be better that you can have an absolutely brilliant Contessa 27 with great sails on it, brilliant safety equipment, looking brilliant, and it's lifted a lot of brilliant. The boat is called Brilliant. That's the, We're going to name our next boat uh, Brilliant. <laughs> what was that? There was a UK comedian that was always like, Brilliant! I can't remember what that was now. Like Crankies or something? I don't know. But the... Um, Oh no, you know what it was? It was the, was it not the Mary Whitehouse experience? And it was Paul Whitehouse that was doing that. Brilliant. Everything's brilliant. Um, anyway, if you're from America, you're just like tuning out now. But the point being, if you, it is better to be on the water on a boat where you've got the funds to be able to afford good equipment, the time to maintain it and the, uh, ongoing pride and interest in it to really still feel wound up and excited about it so you don't have to engage discipline discipline is where you do something you hate to a standard that other people would think that you love it right discipline is doing something you hate as though you love it you don't want to have to bring discipline into this you want to be still loving it you want to be loved doing the jobs we talk about having discipline doing maintenance on boats 
you know, preventative maintenance, a lot of that is cleaning and checking things over. But when it gets to the bit where you're having to make yourself do it, you're not doing a good job of anything. Checking the keel joint might be something where you go, well, looks all right. You know, it seems okay. And then when it goes wrong, then of course it's, it's very, very serious quickly. So if you're at a point where your boat is right at the edge of what you can afford and you get to a point where I don't want to be down there because there's that many jobs and it's that, petrifying taking it out you've just got too big a boat just get rid of it cut your losses get a smaller one get something you fall in love with and i will give that advice to myself as well because we've got these boats sitting down here now one in the boatyard one on the mooring they're enormous they're way too big for me to go out on and every bloody time i have to drive to go and see the boat in the marina or the boat on the mooring now because i've moved house Every time I have to drive past this guy's house and he's got a Drascom longboat in the driveway, <laughs> I look at it and I really sort of fell in love with sailing on a 27 foot North uh, uh, folk boat. And what are the, what's a Drascom longboat? It must be about the same 20, 21 foot open boat, plastic hull, little wooden cap rail has a little outboard motor in a well, um, a little uh, mizzen and, and jigger rig and, um, uh, I had so much fun on that boat. You slop it on a trailer, stick it behind a car, put it up on the beach, you know, big seas, not really a problem. Just like a water never breaks over a gull's back, right? That thing would ride up like a, a little a cork and you can get little covers for them and a cuddy. And, oh, I had so much fun with that boat. And every time I drive past on the way to the 85 footer, I think, Jesus wept. <laughs> what are we doing? Making it difficult. So yeah, avoiding keel failure. That comes down to buy the right boat where you actually think, hmm, that keel looks like it might not be brilliant. Why don't I have the fun in the next two weeks of taking this apart and sort it all out and then put it back together again and I will have increased pride. And then when you're at sea in heavy conditions and you hear a noise, you don't think, oh God, it's the keel falling off. All right, let, uh, let's go to the last uh, moment here. <clears throat> Catastrophic keel failure. In the event that the keel separates from the hull, it is likely that the vessel will roll over to leeward very quickly. With the roll slowly somewhat, oh, sorry, with the roll slowing somewhat when the mast and sails hit the water. From there, the mast will continue to roll until it's fully inverted. This whole process can occur within a matter of seconds with the speed increased in stronger winds. There we go. There's poor, poor lads out on the Atlantic on Chiki Rafiki. Where there is concern over the security of the keel to hull fitting while at sea, it is strongly advised that the stress on the fitting be minimized by reducing sail and the crew and the vessel be readied for a rapid abandonment. Life rafts should be made readily accessible. Grab bags should be prepared and the crew should be in life jackets and foul weather gear. <clears throat> so I have given you something that goes beyond what's in the sea survival handbook there. If you're in a situation where you're at sea, the, the first part of this chapter says, do not leave the boat. Let's go back and just check it. It says there can be no two words that can set more dread into a skipper's heart than abandoned ship. The decision to leave your vessel should not be taken lightly. Don't leave your boat until your boat leaves you. It is packed full of supplies and useful equipment that will aid your survival. OK, so in the event that the keel becomes catastrophically loose, you need to get rid of the mast because it will turn the boat upside down, as we we're talking about. The reason why it slows is because the boat, the, the mast is initially buoyant. And then as the water starts to get in through all the halyard ways and through the, you know, any place in the mast, 
that it can get in the roots of the spreaders if you've got a a roll uh, in mast uh, roller furling of course you're going to have a massive slit up the back of it so it's going to flood 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 once it's inside it's a death sentence okay get rid of the mast first the other way to get rid of a mast very quickly is to um just thinking about it is uh of course to be sailing downwind and then to have the backstay release but you know how that happens is going to be might be worth contemplating in a, a a moment you could set in a lashing that uh is uh a fuse and then um have your turnbuckle undone so you kind of lash between points with light line take off your turnbuckle and then you can cut the lashing and then it should all go away from you right but um having thought about this a little bit what derek and i decided was just yeah release the lured rigging or cut the lured rigging or whatever then go inside the boat and if you've got an autopilot just tack the boat from inside with the autopilot but get rid of the mast if you think the keel's going to come off you you might be able to survive a lot longer in the motorboat that's left over than in the the upturned yacht upturned yachts tend to just they have buoyancy so the water is just rushing in and rushing out as the boat goes buoyantly over the waves and it just sucks everything out of the interior and the the hydraulic pressure will damage you so badly you'll never survive it all right we'll finish this up um the decision on when or whether to abandon ship is a difficult one it is always advisable to stay with the vessel as long as possible however in the case of concern over risk of a catastrophic keel failure this needs to be balanced with the knowledge that a rapid inversion would make it extremely difficult for the crew to escape the upturned vessel if you can't get rid of the rig or you don't want to get rid of the rig the other thing to do would be to tie the life raft on in all the ways we've described um and then uh have a sea anchor or something out uh be streamed behind the boat um, I don't know quite what effect that will have on the life raft or anything else. But then when the boat inverts, you are still tied onto the boat, right? It won't flip the life raft over if the, uh, the, the, the painter goes through a 180 degree, uh, twist on one end, right? But you're still attached to the big target. That's the problem, becoming the small target. Never let yourself become the small target if you have to leave a vessel. All right. Well, we still haven't got through this. I think we only got through a few pages, but what the hell? We're talking about safety. We're talking about abandoning the ship. And that's all, all good by me. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's not too bad with the audio, the way it's going and this kind of like low edited version. I'll at least take time and pin the music on either end of the, uh, the, the podcast. So it feels a little bit more like normal, but, uh, wherever you are, And whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. Give these things a little bit of thought, but don't make them a worry that um, stops you going sailing. Have a plan in place. That's how you enjoy sailing. That at any moment you can think of any crazy situation, play what if and know I have the knowledge, I have the skills, I have what it takes to to fix that problem and then get on with your day. That's what sailing is really all about. Until the next one, cheers. Cheers.